Well, good morning, good morning. Um, you know, it's a full house, but then the front row is just wide open. Never know what to take with that. No, hey, it's, it's great to be here, and we're switching things up a little bit in kind of the flow of the service, and mainly because I wanted to start with a question before we actually hear the text read to us. And, and here's the question. Have you ever wondered if we as Christians, whether we're doing this right like what we do together on a Sunday morning, is God in this or not? And if you've ever asked that question before, then you're in the right place. My name's Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and it's a joy to be together. And, you know, as I think about kind of my life's journey, there have been different points along the way with deep friends of mine, deep friendships where they've been painfully transparent and they knew I was going to be a pastor and they said, hey, Gabe, I've got a question for you, and it kind of fits in the vein of this first question. Gabe, I feel like I don't, I would never have to go to church again, like to a church gathering again, and, and I feel like I could still lead a pretty normal and good life. What do you think that means? What do you think that means? And that's that sort of weighty question in the midst of those conversations as you're wrestling with what does the church look like and what does it look like on a Sunday morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you're asking that question. Maybe this was one of the last Sundays that you're going to give the church a try. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not yet, you would say, a follower of Jesus. And you're wrestling with the claims of the Christian faith. And you're asking that same sort of question. What is this Sunday morning thing all about? Maybe you've been burned by a church. And you disengaged from any sort of Sunday gathering for an extended period of time. And you said, today... For some reason, maybe because we were on one of the top Google lists, like you said, I'm going to give this church a try, and you're here this morning, but you're asking, okay, but how do we know, how, what, what's, what's this Sunday morning thing all about anyway? And how do we know if we're doing it right? I mean, is our goal this morning just to somehow when we gather together to feel better about ourselves so that we can leave feeling better about ourselves? Is our goal this morning just to have some sort of excuse at least a sensible excuse to make it out of the loft at least once on Sunday? Is it to make friends with people who are like-minded? Or is it something bigger? Because listen, I could quote to you passage after passage across the pages of Scripture where God emphasizes the importance of His people gathering together regularly, even weekly. But it doesn't answer the question as to whether or not what we're doing when we gather together if we're doing it right. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the people of God, by God, to proclaim God's message first to God's people and then to the world around him. And this type of calling is way too big for himself. And he was wrestling through that. We've been walking through his own wrestlings in this calling. And what we also discovered is that no matter who you are, when God calls you to himself, he calls you to this huge life of yes, joy, but also hardship, suffering, and pain, a task that is way too big for any one of us. But not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody would agree with Jeremiah. There are a lot of folks in all of our lives where we either have pastors, friends, or family members who think that walking with God is actually something that's really easy, or that somehow God's main goal in our lives is to make us happy or that, that God doesn't actually raise the standard for his people. Well, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is an answer to this first question up at the top. 
about how our Sunday mornings actually engage this broader tension. Because what we're going to find is that God does raise the bar. He raises the standard for you and for me and how we engage the world. And the way in which we gather together as the people of God, if it doesn't make tomorrow any better, if it doesn't change the very framework of our community, when we gather together, if God is in what we're doing, then it'll change tomorrow for the better. And if it doesn't, then we're missing something huge. Today's message is kind of unique. If you've been with us in the series, we've been walking with Jeremiah, and in a lot of ways, as the people of God, we can resonate with this man of God. Man of God. And that what God says to him, what God calls Jeremiah to do, many times we hear God saying to us and we hear God calling us to do in a lot of ways. But today's message is a little bit different because today we don't find ourselves in Jeremiah's shoes. Actually, today we find ourselves much more hearing and receiving a sermon from Jeremiah. We are the listeners of a sermon from Jeremiah. And it's a sermon about this broader question, about Sunday morning, about gathering together as the people of God and what that should mean and do and whether God's in it or not. And when the first listeners heard it, they wanted to kill him. So this ought to be good. Um, if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. And while you're doing that, let me set the scene. We begin with Manasseh, the king of Judah. And Manasseh is the worst, okay? Manasseh... With the temple of God, this was the place where God's presence is most palpably felt the whole world over. It's where God has uniquely positioned himself at this point in history to work through Israel in his temple. Yes. And what Manasseh does is he imports all of these grotesque idols into this very sacred space. And he brings in witches and wizards in place of priests. And it's not like Harry Potter cool kind of witches and wizards. This is very, very different. He brings in escorts to actually engage in very religious orgies. I mean, it's, a, it's an awful, awful scene. And then, littered across the landscape of Judah, you find murder, untold injustice, and abuse. I mean, just as an example, you could go to 2 Kings chapter 21 where Manasseh actually sacrifices his own infant son in this religious ritual. I mean, Manasseh is the worst, okay? And then we come to Manasseh's grandson, Josiah. And these two guys couldn't be any more different. Through a series of events, Josiah at age eight becomes king. And he discovers the word of God. Specifically, he discovers the scroll of Deuteronomy that we still have in our scriptures. In the scroll of Deuteronomy, it details out how the people of God are to relate to their God, what it looks like to worship God, what it looks like to live in light of his presence. And Josiah, he starts reading and he realizes, whoa, we are so far off the mark. And so he brings about this complete and utter reform of temple worship. And that's where we land this morning. Right here in the midst of all of this reform, the people of God are excited about right worship in the temple to the right God. They're enthusiastic to come to the temple to engage in the religious practices. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go to the entrance of the temple and I want you to say this message to the people. What could this message be about in the midst of all this wonderful reform? But would you please stand as we hear God's word this morning. Our passage is Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15, and I'm going to begin in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, 
all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in one sense, everything had changed, right? Everything had changed. The, the old, awful, atrocious religious activities that were happening in the temple had been eradicated. But in another sense, nothing had changed. And for all their reform... God says this means absolutely nothing if there's not more. Your lives look exactly the same. Now, what Jeremiah isn't saying is that buildings are bad, okay? He's not slamming the temple because it's brick and mortar. That's not the case. He's not saying that words are unimportant because words are very important. He isn't saying they shouldn't be going to the temple because they should be going to the temple. What he is saying, though, is that casual attendance isn't enough. A couple hours in the temple on Saturday during the Sabbath isn't enough. You see, it wasn't that they needed greater sincerity in how they sang their songs. It wasn't like their hands were at waist high and they needed to be up in the sky. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't sounder doctrine or deeper prayer. Those are really important things, okay, to be very clear. And other prophets hit on those at different points. But what Jeremiah is saying that is missing here, that if they don't get this, then they miss everything. This is really important, is that they have missed the change in the practical, social ethical, and economic realities of everyday life in the public square. Their faith has done nothing in the real world. We heard it read. They still oppress the weak and vulnerable. They forget about the homeless. They, you know, push away the familyless. They still exercise violence toward the innocent. They still give their bodies to whoever they want when they want. They still want what the false gods promise, although they're still going to the temple and acting like they want what God wants. Everything had changed, but... But nothing had changed. Not really. And God says if nothing changes, then you can't stay here. 
Listen to God's word again. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. In other words, he's saying you can't just show up in the temple, pay your dues, and then go on with life as usual. That's not the way this works. You've stopped short on the reform. In Deuteronomy, it details out not just reform in the temple, but in my land at large. You've stopped short, and it's not enough. And if you don't keep going, you'll lose everything. The land, the city, even this temple that you hold so dear. And like I said, this isn't anything new. In Deuteronomy, that scroll, we find a whole bunch of conditional phrases. In other words, there's a lot of ifs and thens. If you do these things, then you can stay in my land. If not, well, then of course not. And it's also important that when we're talking about this land, it is called the promised land for a reason. You see that there in verse 7. He promised it to their fathers forever. So how, how can they be exiled? How can they actually be kicked out of this land if it's been promised forever? Hang with me. This is really important, okay? In one sense, the land was unconditional. God had promised it to Abraham and his descendants by his grace. It wasn't like he saw Abraham and said, man, you are, you are a great family. We should plan a neighborhood around this, put up some fences. No, 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 no. God gave this land to them by his grace. And yet it's still God's land. And he set up conditions by which they have to live into if they're going to stay in that land. From the beginning, God said that staying in his land required upholding his justice, and his morality. He was the defining factor as those conditions were to be unfolding in in the particular land in which they found themselves. And so it's here, around this issue of the promised land, we find a consistent theme throughout the pages of Scripture. It's the tension of grace and obedience. Grace and obedience. You see, God graciously gave the land, and obedience wasn't the means by which they earned the land. But obedience, this is important, is the condition in which the grace gift could be enjoyed to its fullest. Like if they wanted to enjoy the land, obedience was an important factor. Grace is always first, grace upon grace, and obedience is always second. Always. Anything else cheapens God's grace. And so God says, wake up or get out. And then God says, if anyone tells you otherwise, it's a bold-faced lie. This is where you see in verse 4, there's this weird repetition where the priests and the religious leaders in that day were saying, this is the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It was a sort of self-soothing mantra. You had this Babylonian empire that was about to come in and ransack the people of God, and they're saying, well, surely, sure, we're abusing the vulnerable. Sure, you know, we're still worshiping these false gods in our own time when we really want what they have to offer rather than what God has to offer, and we're really actually murdering the innocent. And, but, but, but the temple, look at all the reforms we've done here. And God's made all these promises to us so we don't have to be afraid of Babylon because of the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what they did in that moment is they used those religious, those worship practices in the temple to actually give them license to do whatever they wanted the rest of the week rather than seeing those religious and worship practices as a place where God made them into the people he wanted, the people he called them to be. This was religious hypocrisy to its greatest extreme. They would show up in the temple, they'd claim God's promises, 
And then they'd go out and cheat and manipulate and kill and gossip and abuse folks throughout the week. And this is why we find God say in our passage, finally, my house has become a living room for thieves. Jesus picks this up in Matthew when talking about the temple as well. It's a den of robbers, a place where abusive people feel like they can come in, take a break, feel completely safe, and then go back out and do atrocious things to other people. And God said, no more. My house is a shelter, but not for injustice. So wake up or get out because casual attendance isn't enough. And if you look at Jeremiah 26, we get the context for when Jeremiah spoke this particular message to the people of God. And you can read their response here in chapter 26, verse 8. We read, and when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. That's a little much, right? <clears throat> but the reality is, if this message, what Jeremiah is proclaiming, doesn't shake each and every one of us to a visceral degree, we're missing what God is saying here, how passionate he is about this. And, and, and I know I come with this tone of intensity because this is an intense passage, and yet simultaneously I've had a lot of conversations with you many of you, about your weeks. And, and there are many conversations I haven't had where you already feel overwhelmed. You already feel broken down, and the last thing you feel like you need is another challenge. <laughs> and yet simultaneously, this challenge is for our good. Whenever God challenges us, it's to speak life in the midst of death. It's to bring light in the midst of darkness. And the question then becomes of us, when God challenges us in our word, in the midst of our blindness, how will we respond? And I look at the good folks that are in here this morning. Many of you I call good friends. And I know you long to do this well. So let's ask that question of ourselves this morning. And so I want to ask, maybe for some here today, if you're honest with yourself, and I know I'm meddling, but Sunday morning for you is just a place where you come and pay your dues. And then the rest of the week you say, hey, God, that Sunday is good for you, but the rest of this week I'll figure out how I'm going to live that out. I'm going to figure out what that looks best for me. No, 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 no. I saw you Sunday. We'll see you next week, right? Is that you? Is that how your faith has been working its way out? And maybe it's something else, though. Maybe that's not it. And so I want to ask a bigger question. What do you think is enough? Maybe I could be so crass as to say, what do you think is enough to get God off your back? Oh, you know... And listen, I grew up in the circle, so maybe it's like, hey, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I was baptized, so I'm in the clear to do what I want, right? I'm fine. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I've tithed, Gabe, like at least once, and uh, I've served a couple Saturdays mentoring at-risk kids. I'm not as bad as most people. I'm better than most. Isn't that enough? What do you think is enough? Because if you're anything like me, as I was wrestling through this passage, that, that was the thoughts, those were the thoughts that were coming into my mind. And as I was thinking about many of you, I'm thinking, listen, many of you aren't that bad. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you know, we've slipped here. You've dropped the ball there. 
but you're not like intentionally proactively seeking to abuse the vulnerable. You're not intentionally proactively trying to steal the last penny from the widow. You're not intentionally proactively setting out these schemes to murder the innocent. And then I sat there and I thought, but still, look around our neighborhood. Look around our city. The the fragmentation we feel, the injustice that continues to rage on, the racism that continues to pervade, the joblessness in certain communities that's felt because of certain realities. Look around our church. Look around your home. Why is it that so many workspaces still have such great fragmentation and really the vulnerable, or there's still so many... So many of the vulnerable are overlooked in the workplace or devalued in the workplace or certain racial groups are continually excluded from certain jobs and, and, and workplaces. Why is it that you look across our city and you see a lot of different nonprofits and, and great organizations that don't have the same amount of zealous employees or these deep, robust benches of volunteers? Is it because in the midst of our city, in the midst of our lives, we're just unaware of the issues? No, we're more aware of the issues today than we've been at any century. Social media has definitely helped us there. If anything, you feel inundated by the issues. So if it's not awareness, what is it? And I was reminded of this when one of our global church partners who was here with us last week, we had Project Kirche here with us, but another one of our global church partners for Christ Community was here. And I remember him saying one of the observations he felt about American culture, he said, Americans are so busy. And then he finished. He said, Americans are so busy to sit on their couch. They're in such a hurry to go and sit on their couch. To which one of my friends said, yeah, but have you tried it? Um, <laughs> but here's the deal. Like, that stings, doesn't it? Because I love Netflix. Like, I can't wait for Stranger Things to come out this next week. Like, there are certain binge-watching experiences that are amazing. Like... So I feel that sting, and, and what it raised in my mind was, how much time and resources do I really waste? I'm not saying don't rest. We've talked about that plenty of time. You need to have good rhythms of rest and work. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying don't celebrate. There are times you need to treat yourself, right? That's good. That's actually healthy. Tyler exemplified that for us last week, right? <laughs> That's good, and we should. But simultaneously, we need to be asking the question, how much time, resources, are we wasting? It reminded me of a quote from Edmund Burke around this issue when he says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Some of you may be aware of that quote, and maybe I'd tweak it ever so slightly. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to feel like they've done enough. Because please listen, I know many of you, most of you, a large majority of you aren't actively seeking to undercut. There may be some of you, I don't know everything in your life, but a majority of you aren't actively seeking to undercut the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the innocent. But what are we busy with and so choosing to leave undone? This throughout the history of the Christian faith has been called the sin of omission. 
We often talk about the sin of commission, actively doing evil things. But what about when good things are left undone because we've preoccupied with ourselves with lesser things? The sin of omission. What do you think is enough? And whatever it is you're whispering to yourself right now to bring yourself comfort, you need to know that with God, nothing is ever enough unless it's everything. Nothing is ever enough unless it's everything. No, 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 but the temple, the temple. I mean, have you seen the temple? No, 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 nothing is ever enough unless it's everything. And what God is saying to Israel this morning, what God is speaking through Jeremiah both to Israel and to us this morning, what we need to hear is that God doesn't want something from you. God wants all of you everywhere. God doesn't want just this particular part over here so that you can meddle and do what you want with the rest of your life. He doesn't want just something from you. He wants all of you everywhere. In other words, he wants total, complete surrender. And when we don't fully surrender, this is really important. Please don't miss this. When we don't fully surrender, the most vulnerable around us suffer most. When we don't fully surrender, the most vulnerable around us suffer most. Isn't that what happened with Jeremiah? They said, God, you can reform us here. But over here, we're going to keep doing what we want to do. Over here, this is mine. I don't think I need your guidance. I don't think I need you to speak into this part of my life. When we don't surrender fully, the most vulnerable around us suffer most. And you may feel okay if you don't surrender fully at first. But the vulnerable still suffer, and often we don't even see it. I don't want you to think, well, I've, I've not surrendered fully, and I feel like my life is fine. Well, it's not just about that. It's about the most vulnerable that you're not even aware of that are suffering in extreme ways because you've not fully surrendered. And I'm not trying to heap guilt this is what we see here in Jeremiah, and this is in a crucial component and calling for us as followers of Jesus. Casual attendance isn't enough, folks. And I'll be clear, it's not going to be enough for you. Like, there, that's just coming and kind of going through the motions once a week or maybe once a month is not going to be able to anchor you in your faith because your heart is aching for something so much bigger than that, and it's going to feel empty, and something else is going to capture your excitement like that. Before long, that next Netflix binge is going to just seem more important than getting up and getting dressed and coming and gathering together with each other. And it's not just not enough for you, it's not enough for God, and it's clearly not enough for our city when we look around. God doesn't want something from you. He wants all of you everywhere. And that leads us back to this kind of initial question are Christians, are we doing this right? How do we know whether or not God is in this or not? Well, what can we learn from Jeremiah's call to total surrender so that we don't repeat the same mistakes of the people of God here at this point in time in history? Then that means when we come together, this is really important, we don't come here to feel better about ourselves, but to see, know, and hear from God. It's not about assuaging and so giving us license to do what we want, but it's hearing God speak to us through his word 
That's what all these songs are for, these prayers. The very arc of the service, Sean was making that very explicit. And the very flow of the service is a reminder that God is working in the world, that he is over the world, and he's still working in your life today. And sometimes when God speaks, sometimes when God speaks, he lifts our spirits because he comforts the afflicted. Time and again, comfort, comfort my people, he says in Isaiah 40. But in other times, when God speaks, he afflicts the comfortable and challenges those destructive desires and destructive cycles in our lives. But it's always for our good. But ultimately, we don't come together here so that we can assuage ourselves or somehow feel better about ourselves. We come here to see, know, and hear from God. And what that means then simultaneously is that when we come together, we don't come here to then pay our dues, but to give our lives. Burdens are surrendered. Bitterness is laid on the ground floor. Laziness is slayed. Unforgiveness is destroyed. Self-centered comfort is pushed back. Injustices are named. Priorities are reorganized. Work is reimagined. Ultimately, we come back to this, that there should be a change in the practical, social, ethical, and economic realities of our everyday in the public square. Anything less cheapens God's grace. You see, we're not here to pat each other on the back because you gave $2 to a panhandler while you're waiting in traffic. That's not surrender. That's paying your dues. We're not here so that a white person can sit next to a person of color and feel like they've made the appropriate steps forward in diversity that our culture still needs to experience. That's not surrender. That's paying your dues. We're here to give our lives total surrender. We're here when God says to give, to give. When he tells us to move, we move. When he calls us to forgive, we forgive. And his word, it speaks into these practical, social, ethical, and economic realities of the everyday in the public square. If we are here to listen to him and not just feel better about ourselves. He's calling us to give our lives to real life change. And the church is called to step up to be light and salt. We see these metaphors time and again from Jesus himself. And I'd love to go into detail here, but we could spend a lot of time, and we can't. And also I'll say the very unique nuances of each of your lives require a lot of your own imagination and the imagination of those closest to you. Many of you know the issues. It's not about knowledge many, many a times. But we just need to be challenging each other to go one step past the cliché. Because there's always the one step that we all know and it feels a bit cliche. But what we need to be doing is challenging each other and say, okay, of course, of course, of course. But what's the next step after that? And how do we challenge one another to take that one next step past the cliche next step? I mean, you, you heard this morning about Thanksgiving bags. We're partnering with Westside Housing. This is a way to provide food for folks over the Thanksgiving holiday that are under-resourced, that also provides human dignity in the very process in which we're seeking to do it. You see, there are a lot of folks who, when they go on Thanksgiving break, these children, they don't just not have a Thanksgiving meal. They don't have food on Friday because they experience free and reduced lunch during school. So when they don't have school, they don't eat. So we've sought to even expand even the list on that checklist so they don't just have a Thanksgiving meal, but they have food on Friday and Saturday as well. This is a way we can collectively be aware of the vulnerable and come alongside. Also with the heart, hats, scarves, and gloves, this is an important component as we seek to care for some of the most vulnerable in our culture, children. 
Yes, and we should be passionate about these things. We should be engaged in these things. I hope there are no bags left in the next two weeks. I hope that our hats, scarves, and I almost said quilts, but gloves just like flow out of that bucket. But I also want you to know that's step one. Even as we do this as a church, this is meant to be an inroad to deeper connection with the work in our city. This is meant to be an on-ramp for you to now say, oh, now I see what's going on here and here and here. Now I can go deeper and take some personal ownership. You can't wait for the church to just own every step. And I'll also say this, on November 18th, Saturday, we're having an outreach meeting, which everybody's welcome to come, where we're talking about the on-ramps for you to get deeper plugged into the partners that we have in our city. Because we believe that what God is saying through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 7 is important. There should be change, real change, in the practical, social, ethical, and economic realities of the public square, especially as we think about downtown. And then lastly, talk about it with your community groups. I mean, this is why community groups are so important. You cannot make it on your own. If you don't feel like you have the support and the infrastructure, and you haven't made time for community groups, this is a big piece to this puzzle. This is a place where we do challenge one another and we encourage each other to think outside the box. This is a place where we support each other and link arms and mission in a more intimate setting. We don't come here to pay our dues. You don't go to community group to pay your dues. We do it so we can give our lives away and encourage one another to hear from God. But then I was thinking, okay, if these are the two components that really should be shaping at the very least what it looks like when we gather together in the name of Jesus, then should we see some outcomes going on in our own lives, when, when we start gathering with these priorities, when we start coming, expecting, and pursuing these two things. And what I think, what will happen, that we see anchored here in the text, is that we can be more confident we're doing this right when we start to see, when God is working in the worship that is ga- us gathered in his name, when God is in our worship, God reforms who we are. And I want you to notice, like this is so important. We see this even in the example of Jeremiah. We become people of courageous integrity. You'll start to see that when we're gathering, when those two things are at the center of us gathering together, yes, anchored in the gospel, of course. But we'll start to become more and more people of courageous integrity. Integrity, because we know that God watches over everything. He's not limited to one specific situation in life. We see this in our passage in Jeremiah 7, 11, when he's talking about the injustices of Israel. Behold, I have seen it myself. They thought he was just hanging out in the temple. He's throughout the whole landscape watching it all. And that'll change the way you come on Sunday morning. It'll change the way you come on Monday morning to work and what you do on Friday night. And then secondly, courage. It's a courageous integrity because this kind of life will cost you something. It will. It costs Jeremiah dearly. Jeremiah is threatened when he talks about this kind of life. It will cost you something. And if you haven't counted the cost, if you haven't thought through, okay, if I do do this, there's the potential I could lose this, then you may never step out because the fear of what it might cost you might be so overwhelming that you'll never take the step in the first place. And if you're not taking steps of courage, then you're not following Jesus. Because this life is not a safe life. The life he's called us to is too big for us. But he wants to make us into the kinds of people who are courageously full of integrity. And listen, if we don't do that, if today our worship doesn't impact tomorrow at all, if it just is something where we attend and we start to feel better about ourselves or we pay our dues instead of giving our lives, God gives us a stern warning here. 
He says that we'll become nothing more than Shiloh. Shiloh. What is Shiloh? Shiloh, how many times can I say Shiloh, right? Um, Shiloh, there it is. Shiloh is a, uh, <laughs> it's a place that where God first had began working in Israel. He had done some amazing things there with Israel, but in the midst of their evil, God destroyed Shiloh. Everybody in Jerusalem would look back and say, well, hey, at least we aren't them. God's with us here with the temple. I mean, his name is all over the place. There's no way he's going to abandon us like he did Shiloh. Shiloh was screwed up, but we're at least not Shiloh. And Shiloh was just this ghost of a religious past and a hollow, shelled-out community, which too many times churches over generations can become. If we aren't coming to hear from him, and we're coming to just pay our dues rather than give our lives. But the good news is, amidst all this warning, and don't we need good news, that it doesn't have to be that way. This place is never, ever, ever meant to be a den of robbers. We're meant to call out injustice, but it's simultaneously a hospital for sinners. Where God, by his grace, sent his son to die for his enemies. That God took the first step in total surrender and saying, here's my son, and he died for all of you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, God died for all of you. And he died for all of you because he wants all of you, not just part of you. He's come to not just save us from sin, but save us unto life and life abundant, and a life that actually is a catalyst for the flourishing of our city and world. And so Jesus, we hear him beckon from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, this language of religious hypocrisy that they were experiencing in the first century, this going through the motions without genuine transformation and inaction in the social, political, and practical, and economic, and ethical realities of our public square. And he says, come learn from me, and I'll give you rest. But it's not a rest of passivity. It's a rest in living the life we were designed to live, a life of courageous integrity. Listen, this morning, friends, God doesn't want something from you. He wants all of you everywhere. And if you care about yourself, if you care about this church, if you care about our city, we need to stop holding back. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Um, I know challenges from your word are not always the easiest thing to receive, so I pray that by your spirit you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that our hearts would be molded to the truth of your word, that you would challenge our false security and empty platitudes and our temptation to pay the dues rather than surrender our whole lives. God help us. We can't do this without you. Thank you for your grace in pursuing us and persistently speaking to us. So may we, God, out of gratitude, not out of guilt, respond with wholehearted devotion to the purposes of your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.